like that intro so much we thought we'd give you another bit of it live from the mecca mormonism this is heart of the matter where institutional religion meets jesus christ face to face i'm your host sean mccraney i think we're going to stick with that that title where institutional religion meets jesus christ face to face and then we'll also keep and i'm sean mccraney your host we have a lot of things that are coming uh, down the pike that are really interesting. We pray that you'll keep us in your prayers. We, it's going to be interesting if things come to pass as they're kind of lining up. So keep us in prayer. Uh, you know, we want to welcome all new viewers uh, to the show and ministry that have come along over the years. Um, if you've been with us more than 18 months, you know that we used to focus solely on Mormonism with an occasional jab at modern evangelicalism. Uh, but we were airing on a Christian-owned station uh, back in the day, eight, uh, two years, 18 months ago and beyond. And we were warned on numerous occasions when, uh, that if we didn't back off from criticizing, uh, like Benny Hinn, we showed clips of him, or Michael Murdoch and the like, that we would get yanked. And so the final straw was my going after the largest local churches that I believed were um, kind of failing to do what they needed to do in building up believers by teaching the word. Uh, within a week, the pastors around the state got us yanked off that station. And so what seemed at the time like a great setback proved to be nothing but uh, a launching pad for the ministry and for me personally to grow in doctrine and, and, and understanding. And so while we feel believers in the state have suffered uh, a loss of good information that was coming into their homes weekly through the former station, uh, we have seen how the Lord has taken the ministry to many places outside of Utah ever since. And in uh, greater and greater numbers, places like Great Britain and Ireland and Scotland, Japan, the Czech Republic, and uh, really anywhere where people investigating either Mormonism or uh, evangelical Christianity are kind of searching for truth. So we welcome all of you. We challenge you now that you're here to test all things, hold fast to what is good. Uh, you can consider what I have to say, but uh, only believe it if the, if the uh, Spirit and the Word of God support it. That's the stance. Okay, before we get to our message tonight and the phone lines, uh, it's that special, unmentionable time of year again. Uh, it's coming up, and we try to think of ways that we can take inventory that we have stockpiled and get it off our hands and into yours. 
Uh, that's the whole thing. So we have a deal that we're going to start running tonight and we're going to run for the end of the year and it is advantageous to all parties to participate. All right. This is what we will send you, a copy of where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. It is a um, 625 page plus book, hardback, and it compares 47 or 67, I can't remember, I only wrote it, uh, topics of what the Bible teaches versus what Mormonism teaches. That's included in the package. And then, of course, the book that we started all, uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon, for your consideration, that will be in the package. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. This is my personal favorite little book. It's very short. You can read it in an hour and a half. That comes in the package. Shield of Faith, written by Brandon Peterson, Officer Brandon Peterson, a Christian police officer. It's a great read. And if you are a police officer or know someone who's a police officer, uh, we, uh, we publish this book for Officer Peterson, so we recommend it. And then we are also going to give you uh, a copy of In His Words, the first CD, and In His Words 2, and In His Words 3, and In His Words 4. That's over a hundred scriptures set to music. The total retail value, oh, and that's not it. Oh wait, I'm supposed to say the total retail value, uh, and then say, but that's not all. But we are uh, going to be publishing uh, another book comes spring of 2015. It's going to be the first of seven, and it's going to be called Giving God a Chance to Make Sense, Part One. Uh, we will also send it, when that is ready, to you, along with this package, which has a, a $105 retail value, um, priced separately, we will deliver it to your door. That means that in, this price includes shipping and handling, $59. $59 is the Holy Day special. So if you're interested in helping us thin our inventory and take advantage of these products, uh, I think they have good merit and they can be used. If you're interested, go to www.hotm.tv. You can go to the store there and you can click on the icon that this is what Seth created for us. Special limited time bundle deal is the name of the special. And uh, we, we go to a lot of research to figure out what's going to appeal to you most. Special limited time bundle deal. He wanted to add of, of heart of the matter products for the people who love the show. But I said, no, Seth, no, we're going to limit it to special limited time bundle deal. So anyway, consider that. That's a whole bunch of stuff. And we think that it's uh, equitable and fair to you. And uh, same with that piece of capitalistic propaganda. Still a good deal. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for uh, allowing us to venture into these areas and try to serve you and teach people the word and, and open up minds and we pray that you'll help uh, our volunteers and staff and our guests tonight who are here in studio and people who are watching, not streaming, and who will watch on the archives. Uh, help the ministry as we uh, try to work our way through by your spirit the things you want us to do. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have long associated the last days 
the end of the world or age with the second coming of Christ, haven't we? And that is a correct association. Uh, it's what scripture itself says. In, says it, in other words, when we are able to identify the last days spoken of in scripture, and when we're able to identify the end of the age spoken of in scripture, which we did two weeks ago, we will discover simultaneously the second coming of Jesus Christ and vice versa. Second coming of Jesus Christ, you discover the last days. Second coming of Jesus Christ, you, you discover the end of the age. I think we have more than proved that the two events, last days and end of the age, occurred in the first century, 70 AD. Because of Jesus' words, he had to have returned at that time, or his words would have proven false and wrong. And his words were not wrong or false. He came as promised. He did exactly as he said he would. This I trust. Anyone who does not believe what he promised in Scripture has occurred has to answer the content of Matthew 24, verse 34, especially verse 34. But there are a few other things we naturally associate with the return, second coming of Christ, all end of the age. There's another thing that we associate with that, and that is judgment. Okay? So it's a correct association because Scripture associates his second coming with judgment. So flip it around. If we can say when Scripture says judgment will occur, we can then say Jesus Christ's coming, second coming, would be at that time too, right? You might agree. Maybe you don't, but that's how I see Scripture. Of course, most churches today teach that the second coming is still out in our future. So this means that they're also teaching that judgment is still out in our future. At the same time, it's taught all humanity is going to be judged at this future time. Uh, the good and the evil. Now, I realize that there are some twists out there that exist in the body about this judgment. Some say, because this is what I used to say, that Christians are not going to be judged with everybody else. Since our judgment came at the cross, and we, we repeat that. But I'm not, one, I'm not so sure that's true. And two, I know a lot of Christians who reject this and believe there's only one judgment waiting us all. So I am going to teach as if this is the standard, as it's what I believe the Bible teaches now. I don't believe there's a separate judgment that happened at the cross for believers. It's, it's Christian rhetoric that you'll hear from the pulpit. We were judged at the cross. Uh, but I don't see that found in Scripture. I see the other side found in Scripture that we all will come to judgment. Okay? So now we know from the, this judgment will not occur from God's mind. And we always say when you stand before God, he's going to. But Scripture doesn't tell us that. What it tells us is that we are going to be judged according to what is written in the books. It says the books. The books will be opened. It's going to be according to the books. From, this is what I'm reading, and maybe I'm missing something, but you, you think about it. Now, not just those who are living today will be recorded in these books, but everyone who has ever lived past, present, future, gathered, waiting 
for these books to be opened and to see if their name is written, found, and judgment will be passed down, eternal life or an eternal visit to the house of pain, the lake of fire, uh, known as the lake of fire. So this is standard fare for most Christian churches. Again, the exception are those who say Christians go directly to heaven. They have bypassed judgment at death, but I'm unclear of how they substantiate that by scripture, but nevertheless. But the story doesn't end here. Christianity also generally teaches that at our individual deaths, if you go to any Christian funeral, Christianity generally teaches that when we individually die, our immortal soul, which is not in the Bible, will go to heaven and the immortal soul of unbelievers will go to hell. You got that? And pastors, we, we reassure each other of this. You go to heaven. Believers go to heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Biblical. So you go to heaven. Got that? And, but then we teach that all who have ever died will, in the future, when Jesus returns, get their body then, be resurrected then, okay? So the, that, that's when they're going to get their body. Their long, naturally decayed bodies will rise from the grave. They will enter those bodies again. And then the massive meeting begins for judgment, you see. Have any, has any of this ever been clear to you in your mind? Do, are you able to clearly see how it works? Is it simple for you to understand how it works? Or do you kind of mumble around the details like I have done? Think about this just for one minute, please. A man 1,400 years ago believed in Jesus Christ. He was a true follower from the heart. He dies as a sold-out believer in Christ. You got that? A pastor then would tell you he went directly to heaven. Okay? So he goes to heaven. He's been waiting there for 1,400 years, only to leave heaven then, when Christ eventually comes to be resurrected and go with his resurrected body to be judged. Now, he went to heaven right after he died 1,400 years ago, but we're still waiting out there for this judgment to come. So he's been in heaven. He comes, gets his resurrected body, and then he stands there to be judged for what? Was a mistake made? Did he die 1,400 years ago and go to heaven by mistake? Why is he going to be judged later? And this is why people will say, well, that's, that's because he was judged at the cross. So, but why does scripture say he will be judged again then? Was the man sent to heaven in error 1,400 years ago? I mean, that is where we say he has been since, right? Then after the judgment of everyone that happens when Jesus finally returns out in the future, is it possible that it will be discovered that his 1,400 years in heaven were wrongly assigned and he's judged and he needs to go to another place? Why is he being judged if, if, if he's been in heaven and he comes back out, gets his body, and then is judged again? That does not make any sense. The chronology's off. This stuff's implausible. So what do we do with the judgment that we've all been waiting for? First of all, I would suggest that when we read of judgment or the judgment in Scripture, it is clearly speaking of God's judgment on the house of Israel, which fell at 70 A.D. 
That's the physical judgment that it's speaking of. Is there a spiritual one? Yes, we'll talk about that in a second. To not see judgment as having taken place at that time makes all the passages that speak of judgment unintelligible. We cannot make sense of them. But when we see them in their context and in their, con their correct context, that Jesus and the apostles were warning and speaking of judgment to fall on Israel and Jerusalem, the light begins to break over our minds and an order of events begins to make sense for us. Since judgment is always associated with the last days in Scripture, and so is the end of the world, we can see that those are past. We can see then that judgment is past. Physical judgment has been pa is passed on. It's history. So let me discuss this for a minute for clarity. Jesus, as the Messiah to the house of Israel first, came to his earthly ministry. He came both as a, as a savior and he came as a judge to the house of Israel. Messiah, he came as a savior and he came as a judge. His roles were reiterated over and over again to the house of Israel. Savior, Messiah, judge. Listen, to some of the house of Israel, he was a savior. They were saved from that destruction, from that judgment that fell upon Israel. To others, he was a judge and they were judged at that time. We know the utter frustration God had with the house of Israel throughout all the Old Testament. They continued in disobedience, following after other gods, forsaking him. Jesus tells parables about this, about how God has sent prophet after prophet into the vineyard who they ignored or they abused or they even killed. Hundreds of years before Christ, God sent most of his people, the 10 tribes, into Assyrian bondage and they never returned as a people from there. Those lost 10 tribes never returned from bondage. They were gone. Then the remainder called Judah, that's the remainder of the 12 tribes, lived in all sorts of captivity and foreign rule. And then when the promised Messiah came, he found them under Roman rule. And there in Judea, God kept Judah together until their Messiah came, who was born of that tribe. In other words, last of all, he sent them his son. He had been sending them prophets. They killed him. Last of all, Jesus says in the parable, they, he sent them his son. And what did they do to him? They rejected and killed him. And God's patience in the parable is exhausted. He says, that's it. Judgment is going to come upon this nation. I have sent you prophets. I've sent workers into the vineyard. Last of all, I sent my son and you killed him. There is judgment is going to fall. What more was God going to do with the nation of Israel? What more is he going to do with them? He sent his own son to them. That was it. That's the end of the freaking line. There's no more to be coming to them. He did what he said he was going to do. So the arrival of judgment was coming, and it was a judgment upon them. They had the law. They had the promises. They had the actual Messiah. They had the living God who was their God, and they were his people, and all the outreaches to them had been exhausted. Judgment was to then come, and it was to come when his son returned. And the only remaining portion of the house of Israel, Judah, gathered there in Judea, was wiped out. Their temple, their priesthood, their genealogies, 
the city of David, all of it destroyed and if not destroyed, scattered. So listen, the destruction of Judea, of Judah in Judea by the Romans was the coming judgment described in the Old and New Testament by Christ and his apostles. How can I prove this? By a reasonable, non-manipulated reading of the Bible. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, he was a prophet of doom. Just listen, stay with me on this. 400 years before the birth of Christ, God, through Malachi, accused his people of great evil and rebellion. Their response to God's accusations through the prophet Malachi was, says, where have we wearied God? They said, where have we robbed God? When have we robbed God? When have we done any of these things to God? That was their response. So Malachi ends his short book of prophecy and he says, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's Malachi 4.1. I would suggest that when Malachi said the day's coming and no root or branch is going to be left, that is a picture of the destruction of the temple where all of the genealogy was destroyed by fire. Root and branch, the genealogical tree, destroyed by fire, okay? But we also know God is merciful and he's always reaching. And in the very next verse in Malachi, he says to those who are faithful, but unto you that fear my name, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. The son of righteousness speaks clearly to the son of God coming and healing, saving those who received him. Stay with me. In verse 4 of Malachi, God adds a message to the faithful who 400 years earlier would be looking for the Messiah. And he says to them as a means to keep them prepared for the, uh, to receive the promised Messiah, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And then he says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is in the Old Testament, last book, Malachi. God says, listen, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of this great and dreadful day of the Lord, okay? What is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? It's the same day when the Lord said he would leave the house of Israel without root or branch, fire burning up. It's a horrible way to end the Old Testament with God fed up with their sins and rebellious hearts of his people warning them that the end of the line is coming. That's Malachi, 400 years past. They call it the intertestamentary period. There is no prophecy during those 400 years. God is silent, okay? And what does Matthew open up with in his narrative? What comes next? The story of a man named John the Baptist. What does the Baptist come preaching? He comes preaching the same message that Malachi had given 400 years before, okay? It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, that's a pretty present tense thing. 
In the Greek, from the wrath that is about to happen, John says to them, who has come and warned you to flee from that? Okay. John appealed to more of Malachi's words. He says in Matthew 3.10, and now also is the axe laid unto the root, there's the root reference to Malachi, of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. It's the fire that Malachi warned is coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Then in verse 12, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's a 70 AD reference that John the Baptist has said the Messiah is here to save you from that. Malachi warned you it was coming. I am the fulfillment. I am the Elijah that has been sent before. This is what is coming your way. All the emphasized words include Malachi's warning. Now Malachi said that merciful God would send Elijah the prophet before the dreadful day of the Lord. Are we still waiting for this Elijah to return? In Matthew 11, 12, 15, Jesus said these revealing, prophetic, fulfilling words of Malachi. This is what Jesus said. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you will receive it, this is Elias. That's the way of saying uh, Elijah in the Greek. If you will receive it, this is the Elijah that Malachi said was coming, which was for to come. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's so clear. It is so clear right there of what Jesus is saying. And John the Baptist, the promised Elijah, came preaching. The wrath is shortly to come, asking how the religious rulers are going to escape the burned stubble and chaff that was headed their way. These words are the very same words Jesus used in his parable of the wheat and tares. He uses words about fire and stubble and chaff. The same exact stuff. Peter describes the events as fervent heat and melting elements. All verses depicting the judgment day approaching them, which was an utter desolation of uh, Jerusalem in the land of Judea. Now, we can take all of this and see it reasonably and applicable to the context and people who it was given. Or we can utter utterly unreasonable things like, well, John the Baptist was prophesied uh, the promised Elijah, but we're still waiting for the judgment to come. Okay? knowing that the best straightforward application of all these facts deal with the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the most contextual, reasonable way to see what is being said and what happened. When we come and say, oh no, yeah, certainly John the Baptist came before the dreadful day of the Lord, but that still hasn't happened. What's the point of having it, John the Baptist come 2,000 years before and it not to happen yet? That's not much of a sign. You see? And so it's really stretched thinking to approach it this way. Again, you want to believe fairy tales. I'm sorry. And the myths of man have at it. I won't argue or dismiss you as a brother or sister, but I want truth. Listen, the prophet Joel also prophesied of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is what the Lord said through him. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Joel 2.28 then in verse 31, the same chapter, he says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay? Uh, Peter, of course, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he quoted this passage and he said, this is what Joel was talking about. Okay? 
And uh, uh, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel. Okay, and he's talking about he's going to pour out his spirit before the great and terrible day of the Lord was fulfilled. And again, God promised that before the great and dreadful day that he would send Elijah. And Elijah came within 40 years of the great and terrible day. That's a reasonable view of the whole thing. Again, God promised through Joel that he would pour his spirit upon all flesh, which he did at Pentecost, according to Peter, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which again came within a generation. That's a reasonable view of these passages to say that, uh, Eli that Peter would quote and say, this is the fulfillment of Joel here at the day of Pentecost and the great and terrible day has yet to come is ridiculous, not contextual, not, not reasonable. But if we read them in context and see how vitally important signs they were to the Jews who received Christ then, we can see what a tremendous signs they were at that time before the destruction of Jerusalem. And then they make sense and then they have meaning to the record. Now, let me revisit a word and we're going to wrap this up in the Greek. It's mellow. It's like uh, Donovan's mellow yellow. The word is mellow in the Greek. The word does not, cannot ever mean it's a long way off. Mellow means it's about to happen, just to reemphasize. Unfortunately, the King James translators in the 1600s believed that the second coming hadn't happened yet. And so they took mellow and they never translated it to mean is about to happen the way it should have been. They translated it in a different way. So let me read to you, okay? The word mellow means about to happen will shortly happen. Luke 7, 2, where it says, And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Ready to die is mellow. So the translation really should read, And a certain centurion who was dear to him was sick and about to die. Now you might say, well, that's no big deal. Let me give you another one. In John 4, 47, when... He heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee. He went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. He was at the point of death. At the point is mellow. Ready to die is mellow. Okay? In Acts 18, 14, Paul was, uh, it says, Paul was about to open his mouth. About to, in the Greek, is mellow. Okay? It's a, it's a tense. That means it's going to happen shortly. Okay? Acts 23, and he was about to sail. Mellow. Uh, Acts 27, ready to depart. Mellow. So it puts you in the, it's not, he wasn't going to, it doesn't say he was ready to depart and he departs 2,000 years later. It means about to, okay? So how about some passages where the writer are speaking of judgment that's going to fall, okay? The word in all these examples that I'm going to give you is mellow. About to, shortly, ready to, in a very quick time is going to is mellow. But the King James translators didn't do that because they didn't believe judgment had happened. And so you read in Matthew uh, 3, 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's mellow and it should say from the approaching vengeance, from the approaching wrath, not just the wrath to come, but the approaching wrath. 
Acts 17:31. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteous by the man with whom he has ordained, wherefore he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Mello would say he has appointed a day in which he is about to judge the inhabitants. That's how you would read that in the, in the literal Greek translation. In Acts 23, 3, then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee. That's how the King James reads it. Okay? It's mellow, and it should say, God is about to smite you. It's a much quicker tense. Acts 24, 25. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Again, the word judgment to come is mellow. Uh, and, and so it should be about to come. The judgment that is about to come. 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge? The who shall there is mellow. It should read who is about to judge. When you read scripture that way in the literal Greek, you know then what uh, Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy, that Jesus was coming and he was about to judge. You read it in this way, you can apply it to ourselves and think it's going to happen still in our future. Hebrews 10, 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall, again, mellow, which is about to devour the adversaries. If we had that line in scripture, we would better understand what was being said. All of these verses put judgment in the real time that it was meant. Jesus is coming to put judgment. He's about to do it, shortly to do it at that time. Let me stay for, stay, step away from mellow really quickly and just give you some plain old straight up English. You ready? This is what James says. Okay, James, the Lord's brother, probably who wrote this, James 5, 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He's telling them there. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. That's, that's James speaking of his brother, uh, speaking as the Lord's brother. He's coming and it draws nigh. Ju grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands, the judge stands before the door. Okay? Um, I don't think you get too much more emphatic than that. Or the coming uh, draws nigh. The phrase draws nigh means is at hand in the Greek. Uh, uh, is the judge still drawing nigh? Are we reading that and say it's still drawing nigh for 2,000 years? No, it drew nigh. It drew and came. 2,000 years later, no. Listen, if you agree he came, you have to believe this is when judgment came and when the end occurred. If you believe he came, you have to believe this is when judgment came and the end of the age, the world, it says in the King James, occurred. Can't twist it up. Listen to what Peter says in 1 uh, Peter 4. This is a great passage, you guys. First, speaking, he says in verse 5, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? God is ready to judge, Peter says there in Peter 4, 4 5. Then in verse 7, Peter adds, but the end of all things is at hand. The Apostle Peter says this. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer to his readers at that time. The end of all things is at hand. 
I don't know how you can, how do you understand that any differently than what Peter was saying in the context of how he said it? How do Christians take these words and apply them to our day in a physical sense? It's sheer nonsense. But Peter has not done. He adds in verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin with the house of God. And if it first begin at us, meaning the house of Israel, judgment's about to begin, he says. What shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So he says it's about to begin here. So what does he mean judgment began? It began there. And then how is it continuing on? Let me explain before we open the phone lines. It continues on exactly the same way. It applied to the recipients of the words then, but for them it was physical. For us it's spiritual. Judgment began with the house of Israel, 70 AD, and it continues with us every time one of us die. Every time one of us die, we have a great or terrible day of the Lord. We have a great day of the Lord where we are, we are raptured, we have a great day where we are taken up, we are judged, we enter into heaven, and that's it, baby. It's done. Or we have a terrible day of the Lord, and we go to hell. That's what Scripture says, and we go to the waiting place. That's what it says. Like the Jews in Judea, we too will be judged at that time, that great and terrible day, our own terrible day, or great day. Those faithful will be blessed by being taken up, and those unfaithful will be, be cursed by being destroyed, supposedly, as we say it, in hell. At this time, our individual worlds come to an end. Our world will have come crashing down. The time is away. Uh, it's at hand for all of us when we read Scripture. That's why we can take the models that are given for the house of Israel and their judgment and destruction, and we apply it to ourselves spiritually as we read. And if we'd been doing that over the past 2,000 years, we would have, have a much healthier view of what Christianity is all about instead of what I did last week, where I read just up to the year 2000, all the prophecies that had come around of his second coming that have failed. I hope all of this is becoming clear. Why do I hope this? Because it's true. And secondly, to know the truth, we're set free. I have discovered through emails and all kinds of interactions with people that this is a very troubling teaching for people. They become hopeless. And it's kind of a shame because I think it says to us, we've built our hope on this hype of rapture, hype of second coming, hype of tribulation, hype, hype, hype. And we haven't built our hope in the fact that we know the Lord, we've been saved, we can serve and we can share. And, and, and when we die, we have our a great and terrible day of the Lord and, and we continue on and life continues on. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Do you feel that Christ is coming back at any time? Do you feel that in Thessalonians, when the trumpet sounds and the dead will rise, there will be caught up? Has that already happened in your opinion? Yes, I believe that, that Thessalonians is clearly talking about Christ's second coming in 70 AD. 801-590-8413, um, 801 801-590-8413. Seth has created a great thing on the uh, website. People can write in. This person wrote, Sean, please pray for my suicidal high priest friend. He did everything right according to the Mormons until he had an affair with a woman in his workplace. 
Then he repented by going to his wife and bishop. This resulted in being disfellowship for two years and his reputation destroyed. It has been five years since it happened. He feels he has lost his community and can't regain his former place no matter how hard he tries. He's received his endowment during this time when blood oaths were being taken. The last time he spoke to me, he asked if I, wa if I, was, if I wanted to know when he was going to do it. Uh, referring to suicide. He lives in Frisco, Texas. His name's uh, the person who writes his name is Terry. And you know, um, what, a, what a tragedy that we would um, make mistakes like the man did with committing adultery and, and then turn ourselves over to depression and despair. Uh, Christ comes to give light, not depression and despair. He came to save the lost. And so when we read stories like this, it is such a shame. If you are out there and you have committed egregious sins, if you're living in sin, cling to Christ. Go to Christ. Don't let go. Uh, you know, we all commit sin, so you're not alone. Uh, yours just happens to be one that is more frowned upon, and, and that's just the way it is in this life. But we all commit sin. Look to Christ, never let him go, no matter what is going on or has gone on or will go on in your life. He's the shepherd, hang on to him. Doug in Oklahoma City, LDS are pushing the showing of Meet the Mormons at a Megaplex Theater downtown next to the Thunder Basketball Arena in the heart of a new tourist venue there. First of October, WTF. Uh, well, you know, just let's, let's be fair, uh, Catholics, Mel Gibson had the passion of Christ. Yeah, you could say, well, you know, I wonder if the Buddhists were pissed off at that. Uh, Christians, I don't know the name of Christian films because I haven't seen any of them. I know that TBN did, did something about the rapture that went into all the major theaters about 15 years ago. It was about the end time rapture and, and all Christians ran to it. I know today Christian cinema, uh, Kurt Cameron's done some films. Does anybody out here know the name of a Behind. Left Behind series? A new release? Yes, right now. Right now, the Christians have a left behind with Nick Nolte, handsome Nick Nolte in it. So we all... Oh, Cage. Ugly Nicholas Cage in it. <laughs> Just kidding. We all are marketing. We, and, and so when we just pick the LDS and say they're doing their own movie, you know, I probably couldn't sit through the movie. I can't stand the PR. But can you stand the PR in our own house? Any Christian church would love to have the PR. They would love to have a, a major motion picture out there and the resources to do it and to open up at the megaplexes. So let's be fair. I mean, it's sour grapes to look and point a finger and say, look at that. We would like the same thing. It's just like that mall they've got up there. I know a lot of pastors and churches who would love to own a billion dollar mall. You know, money helps a lot in this world. So let's back off on just the, uh, on the accusations. We would do the same thing. Uh, Laura in Las Vegas, how can you say there will be no rapture? Exclamation point. This is all coming through people who watch the show and write comments in at www.hotm.tv. Um, I'm not saying there's no rapture. I think that we are all caught up at our death. And for believers, not unbelievers, believers are caught up and they meet Christ in the skies. I believe there's a rapture and I think that's the context for us today. Can't get the show. What's up? I don't know. Seth, get on that. Um, The return of Christ even changes my concept of prayer, this writer adds. For instance, the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come, let your 
uh, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The question is, I'm not sure how to pray now. Uh, it seems that there is nothing left in context except to rejoice and give God thanks. What do you think? That's from Jeff in Connecticut. I kind of agree. You know, when you, when you change and you remove all the hype about it, it's, you kind of say, well, you know, what do we do now? Well, we share Jesus so that people can escape dying and going to hell. We share Jesus so that they can be raptured at their death and go be taken to heaven. We grow in our faith. We become sons and daughters of God. We rejoice in the fact that we know him and the, and the relationship we have with him here. All of those things which are not really, if we took, if we took just 50% of the time we have spent on waiting for this rapture and this end time and judgment and fire to come and spin it on just growing in the Lord by the Spirit, uh, we would be such a different people. So that's how I would say it. What does Jesus have to do with Mormonism? Isn't it true that Mormonism, a woman can't get out of the grave without her husband or priesthood? That's Shelley and Altamont. Uh, what it is, is um, the LDS believe that temple attending uh, members the wife is given a secret name. The husband is given a secret name. When they go to the veil, uh, when a woman goes to the veil, her husband brings her through when they're married. At that time, when he's bringing her through this curtain, he gets to hear her secret name. He knows it. And so the idea has been an LDS uh, uh, culture of old that it's the husband who will call her forth. That's where that comes from. I don't, I don't know if it's still taught that way. I think maybe among, among temple attending Mormons it's taught that way. Uh, I would guess that most who uh, are members of the church and haven't gone to the temple, I don't think there's any application to them whatsoever. And so the idea is the husband and wife are sealed. Their love and their marriage is so strong, the wife is not fearful that the husband isn't going to call her forth because they are unitedly entering heaven by their own righteousness. That's the way it plays out. Do, uh, this is from River, wait, River, this is from Riverton. What about reincarnation? Do you believe in this? No, I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't think it's a biblical tenet. And I think there was a transmigration of souls taught by the Greeks, which we can find referenced in John. But in terms of reincarnation, no, transmigration of souls is very similar to what L. Ron Hubbard taught in that when you die, your soul is looking around for a body to get in. And it's very nervous that it's going to not have a body to get in. And so it migrates to the first body it sees that's going to come to this earth. That is uh, a Greek philosophy known as the transmigration of souls. And so L. Ron Hubbard taught that you have to get clear of all the things that will cause you to make a bad mistake when you die. So what you do is you get clear of all the stuff that mommy gave you and all your problems and addictions and you become free. And so when you die, you stop and say, well, I'm going to make a good decision on who I jump into. I'm not going to just jump into someone out of fear. And then you come into this world as a prince or a king. Those people who are fearful might jump into the body of an animal. And that's how, well, the Greeks taught transmigration of souls. So this is the background for when they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, who did sin that this man was born blind, the man or his parents? If the man had sinned, he's talking about the transmigration of souls. And Jesus clears that up clearly. Neither the man nor the parents, but that the glory of God would be manifested. All right, let's go to Matt in California on line one. Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. 
Sean, how's it going? Good, how you doing? Good, I, I just had a quick question. I was wondering when I was watching the show, um, what happens to all the people that die, say, 200 years before Jesus comes back? Are they, are they waiting, say, 200, 500, even 1,000 years before hey, is this back, and then, and then they're judged? Is this Matt Matt? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, this is uh, this is my dear friend Matt von Bublitz, famous skater and filmographer uh, for many different uh, skating films. Matt, good to hear from you. you know, it's a good question. Yeah. So, what happens to everybody who dies 200, 500, a thousand years before he gets back? Yeah, are they waiting? What's the situation with that? Yeah, the situation from the the Christian pulpit is typically if they were believers when they died, they went to heaven. And if they're unbelievers, they are in hell. And uh, until they are, until, and we are all waiting for Jesus to come back. And when he does, that's going to institute things happening in heaven and in hell for the dead. Ah, gotcha, yeah. Yeah. Good question, cool. though. Yeah, thanks for the answer. Yeah, great show, by the way. Hey, thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Love you, brother. Bye. We're going to Gail in Vernal, Utah. Gail in Vernal. Yes. You're on the air, Gail. Okay. Hey. Sean, I yeah. have a problem here. Good. Um, the research that I have done, and I'll be happy to email that to you in the future, mm -hmm. you're saying that it all happened at 70 AD, but John apparently was on the Isle of Patmos at 95, 96 AD, saying that the revelation in the Bible mm, really doesn't have the importance I'm going to hang up and let you comment. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Um, it's a great comment because, quite frankly, if Revelation was written in 71, 75, 80, 90, 95 AD, then the whole preterist idea uh, does lose value, great value. Um, and so Gail brings up a good point. The question is, who validates that Revelation was written in 9095 AD? Uh, because uh, these are just men and women who are guesstimating on when it happened. We don't have any kind of evidence, and we, but we do have other scholars who suggest it was written in 68, 65, 69 AD. So where the people who are waiting for Christ to return, and they are going to embrace the idea that Revelation was written uh, well after the destruction of Jerusalem. I personally believe that was written sometime prior to 70 AD. And I think when we take Gail's position or my position, we have equal amounts of non-support. And we just, and, and so what we do have to say is what does Revelation say? And when we get into that, and you read the first chapter and the last chapter, he says through there he's coming shortly and the word is mellow and he repeats it at least six times coming shortly. Then if it happened, if it was actually written in 95 AD, then we would have to believe Jesus came within 40 years of that within a, by, by, by 130 AD, 135 AD. So even if it was written in 95 AD, I don't believe it was, but even if it was, the book itself of Revelation suggests he was coming quickly, shortly, anytime. 
And that's why I think uh, before 70 AD is the authorship and it applies to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, listen, someone else, I'm having a Facebook discussion with Mormons who deny the church ever taught that apostates go to outer darkness. Uh, it's a great question. It certainly was taught. I taught it when I was on an LDS mission. I was taught it when I was LDS. But you can just go to Doctrine and Covenants 101.91, Doctrine and Covenants 133.73. You can go to the Book of Mormon, Alma 40.13. All speak of outer darkness with his weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. On October 1974, General Conference, Marion G. Romney talked about outer darkness being the place that the unbelievers go. But more even to the point, Charity the Plan in the New Era article, July 2006, says outer darkness is the place where there is no glory. And that is the best definition of the LDS view of outer darkness. So it was certainly taught. You can also go to Gospel Fundamentals, uh, chapter 36, where it speaks of uh, outer darkness. So, you know, th this stuff is all on the Internet. You can get any of it for those uh, disgrace book discussions. Uh, how much time, Derek? Eight. Okay, uh, this is from Sandy K. Um, listen, the LDS already completely control the state uh, for the last 17 years. I've heard talk lately of Mitt Romney possibly running for president in the next, next election. If he runs and wins, do us Christians have to follow the laws that he will write and change? Of course we do. We follow the laws of the land. Of course we do. And uh, we follow the laws that Obama brings in and he changes. And we follow the laws that Mitt Romney, if he was made president, would make. And we follow the laws of the land. The only time we don't is if those laws go against what Jesus and the Bible have taught us. If they go against that, then what we do is we refuse and we suffer. We don't fight against the laws of the land. We suffer for our uh, resistance. That's what happened to the Romans in the Colosseum. Deny your faith, be fed to the lions. Hmm, I will be fed to the lions. They suffered for Christ. And so it says in Romans, let every soul be subject to higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So if you are under a despotic rule, the thumb of some uh, uh, horrible person, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and you're a Christian, you, you obey Pol Pot unless Pol Pot tells you something that goes against your conscience in Christ, and then you humbly bow your head and you take the stripes. But this whole idea of rising up and fighting for Christian rights and everything, that's absolutely ludicrous. So, uh, uh, but individuals, they wanna, they wanna get involved in politics, great. Individuals are led to do those things, fine. But representing Christianity, I just absolutely disagree with it from a biblical point of view. From Alice B., I've been enjoying the campus videos on YouTube. Unfortunately, people are flagging them as inappropriate. And that means that if people have safe search on their videos, on, on their computers, the videos don't play. It's funny. I was at my daughter's college, my, uh, and, and, my, and Cassidy, I think, or Mary, looked up uh, Aletheia Ministries on there, and it said, porn, this is a porn site. <laughs> so people, I guess, go and they do subterfuge, 
and they they are ruining the ability to get these things and so uh, that's just come to our attention I'll pass it on to our tech guys and see what they have to say hi Sean online right now what about the hundred and forty thousand you mean the hundred and forty four thousand were they re real? Danita, it's 144, not 140. You missed 4,000 of the elect. Uh, were they really Jews, virgin? Have they been selected already? Eric from Lima, Peru. I'm going to cover Millennium and 144,000 next week on the show, Eric, from Peru. So thanks for watching. It's a great question. I promise you next week we'll cover it, and we'll try to get Danita to listen to you, brother, and write what your question is. All right. Um, this is... Uh, uh, oh, we had our sermons, www.campus with hyphens between. Do we have a graphic for that? Campus with hyphens. Merle's putting it up. Our sermons are available to watch live. And uh, you come on Sundays, Utah time, 10 or 2.30, and you can tune in. You can watch us teach the Bible verse by verse live. Uh, what? HOTM.TV is, uh, is, is the address. And so uh, last week while I was teaching, uh, we were teaching about freedom in Christ, and I made this comment. Uh, if you don't feel like reading the Bible, then... I, well, actually, I didn't say that. I said, there's times when I have not felt like reading the Bible, and I don't read it. And there's times when I have felt like not praying, and I don't pray. And, and some people are like, what? Well, when it becomes that I have to, or it becomes that I'm forced to, then you start to lose the Spirit working upon us and interacting with us. And so we... we uh, you got to have that liberty because we go by the spirit. We don't we don't exist by reading the scripture and by prayer. We exist by the Holy Spirit. The reading the scripture and prayer helps us in our faith. So having watched one of these sermons, Keith wrote, you provided great comments today when you stated that sometimes you don't read the word every day or pray because it's more important to do what the spirit leads us to do, not what we think we have to do. I have found myself often trapped in a version Bible reading plan, simply knocking out the reading to complete the day instead of maybe just taking a week to go through a verse. If I miss days, I get convicted and I want to dump the whole reading plan. Your statement didn't solve the dilemma, but sure was helpful in snapping me out of what was becoming a man-made prison based on an app. We want freedom, baby. You want freedom in Christ. You don't have to worry if you skip reading the Bible. You don't have to worry about your salvation if you, if you don't have it in you to pray. It's, it's not like we pray and God is, will then help us. It's when if we aren't feeling like we don't pr can't pray and we're not reading the word, that's when he's helping us the most. That's when you would help your own child the most. Are you going to help them most when they're doing their homework and they're eating three squares a day and they're going to bed on time? Or are you going to help them when they, they can't eat and they can't sleep and they can't do their homework and they're failing? You're going to come in most when they need you. And, and so understand that about God a trillion times over. He's so much better than us. That's the kind of relationship we have with him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm in the Word uh, all the time because I love it and it is how we grow. But it can't be mandated by programs, especially on apps, or else it's going to take away the freedom. Um, 
Two minutes, did you say, or one? one? One minute left. Last week, we left off in 2000. We went from 2500 BC to 2000 AD, and we left off with 2000 AD, and I had another 15 pages of prophecies of end times. And I'm going to uh, open up and we will include those, I promise you, next week, because some of them are very interesting. Of what had been prophesied from 2000 on, we're also going to talk about millennium and what it means in Scripture. We are also going to talk about um, the question, the 144,000, and we'll answer what those mean, I believe, uh, contextually in Scripture. After that, a couple passages that come from uh, the apostles, and then we're going to end the series Finally, it seems like if there was going to be a rapture, it would have happened since we were doing the series. If we're going to end it, we're going to move on. All right. So join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel 